Then, you know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, Brother Man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined, as always, by the original Long Island Iced B himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Dan, I just want to say a prayer tonight for my adopted, newly adopted team, the Baltimore Orioles, so that they can overcome their 0-2 uh, deficit and sweep those stinking Rangers. And one other thing, for those of you who are watching this show, do not adjust your monitors. This is actually my shirt. <laughs> Benny out here dressed like you, like you said, dressed like the Twilight Zone. I'm not dressed to the nines. I can't afford that. I'm dressed to about the 4.7s. <laughs> dressed, dressed to the 4.7s. I like yeah. that. Well, Benny, we always have a lot of fun on the show. We've uh, we've been talking for a while when we first organized tonight's event because uh, this is somebody we've really been looking forward to talking to. Uh, you see the third face on screen. We hear the third voice in the studio. Benny, why don't you tell everybody who we got on the line with us? Absolutely. Dan, we've had so many interesting as well as well-educated guests on our show. Davey O'Hannon, the man with a Ph.D. in professional wrestling, has been our guest on several occasions. But tonight, we actually have a medical doctor in the house. It's an absolute honor and a pleasure to introduce Dr. Harvey Whippleman, who also answers to Downtown Bruno and Bruno Lauer. Bruno, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Well, thank you. I want to let y'all know I've got a BS, an MS, and a PhD, okay? We all know what BS means. MS means more of same, and PhD means power, higher and deeper. Benny, I... I <laughs> I know we uh, we always talk about you being uh, your your old nickname, but I think we got we found somebody who has more claim to, and I mean this respectfully, more claim to BS than you do. I see somebody else is chiming in in the background. She's, Benny, uh, she's Benny. a charter member of the Tony Rose fan club. <laughs> <laughs> you, we, we interview hadn't even started yet. Look at all the heat you're drawing. I know, right? Like just like old times. Absolutely. Well, uh, Bruno, I want to start. This is uh, this is episode 146. Dan and Benny in the Ring. We've been doing this for a couple of years now. We've asked this question 145 times. We've received 145 different answers. Um, but I really don't think we've ever heard a story like yours. Uh, so I want to get. I want to start with the the same question we always do. You somehow got involved in professional wrestling at the young age of 14. Can you tell us how that happened? How on earth do you get involved so young? Well, there was a fair in West Virginia, and I went over there with a guy that I was friends with that was going to do do something at the fair, like set up the stands or do something, I don't know, some sort of you know labor type deal. Well, I went over there with him, and there was a, a tent set up, and they were having wrestling in the tent. And I wanted to go in and watch it. Well, I, you know, I was just killing time. I didn't have no money, you know, back then. I didn't, you know, uh, my friend was doing his his work or whatever. And it was actually Mid-Continental Wrestling, Dale Mann, uh, who's no longer with us, God bless him. He was the promoter. And 
the guy at the, at the tent wouldn't let me in. He said, uh, now you got to, this doesn't come with the fare. You have to pay extra to come into the, into the tent and watch the matches. I didn't have no money. So I was like disappointed, get ready to walk out. And one of these guys that worked with Dale Mann said they needed somebody to help tear the ring down and uh, load it back on the trailer. If I would stay afterwards and do that, they'd let me come in. So I said, okay. And they even let me get jackets. Like when the guys put their jacket or their hat or whatever they wore to the ring down, I got to bring it back to the, they had these little trailers where they were dressing. Of course, they wouldn't let me in that or nothing because, you know, back then is when the business was very strictly protected. And here I was, somebody just out, well, truthfully, off the street, you know, so they didn't let, let me in or nothing. But then my friend come found me and said we had to go. He was done. He didn't have to come back until, you know, like the, the wrestling was only there for like the one day. But like the, the fair was there for like five days or something. So he did what he had to do, and he didn't have to come back until it was time for him to tear down whatever it was he helped put up. I said, I can't leave. I promised these guys I would help them. Well, I got to go. So you got to find your own way then. I'm not going to wait around. I got to go. I said, well, yeah, I made, I, I kept my own, keep my word. So I stayed there. I had no way to ask them if I had, you know, somebody could bring me back to, you know, my mom and dad's place. And they said, no, we're going to South Dakota. Wow. Oh, wow. So I said, well, can I come? They said, yeah, if you want to, uh, we'll put you to work. You can be in our ring crew. And uh, that's how it all started. That was in 1979. And that's here it is 44 years later, and I'm still making my living at it. Unbelievable. Yeah. You, 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 always, you always hear the story, the, almost the punchline of running off to join the circus. I mean, you literally ran off to follow the tent. That's that's awesome. That's a true story. And that's, that's how it all started. And then... Uh, I met uh, the guy that you all might remember, Royal Kangaroo, Lord Jonathan Boyd, was the headliner against Dale Mann every night. And uh, I got to knowing Jonathan Boyd. He helped me out. And he, he said, uh, hell, I can get you booked, you know, in, in uh, Kansas City after this tour is over. And I went to work for Bob. I wanted to do some other thing. Then I met. Rocky Johnson in Kansas City, where I was just in Kansas City, I was just a ring boy, you know. And I put out posters in the spot show towns or whatever. Well, Rocky made me a manager. Rocky's the one who brought me to to uh, Hawaii in Polynesian PPW. PPCW. Oh, wow. uh, that's how the management thing started. Now I managed a couple times on the Dale Mantor. Because I really wanted to be a manager. I was learning the business a little bit by little as I went along. And, but I didn't know enough. I thought all the manager did was yell at the audience and yell at the good guys. So one night, the referee leans over to me and says, when so-and-so hits the ropes, you know, when the good guy hits the ropes, trip him. Well, I wasn't wise up to the business yet. I said, shit, I ain't going to do that. I think I was going to beat my ass. Maybe the referee's got a bet on the match or something. Maybe he don't like the guy. I said, I'm not going to do that. So the guy hit the ropes on my side, and I stepped way back. I didn't trip him. But the guy expected me to trip him. I guess he was green, too, because a veteran wouldn't do that. Uh, he took the bump anyway. So I got, <laughs> that's, that was my training in the business right there. That's when I got trained in the business right there. 
Bruno, I might have this wrong then. I, I you know, Wikipedia, it's hit or miss. And when right. I researched you on Wikipedia, it said that uh, you were trained by actually Newton Tatry. So I don't know. I if, no, no, no. That's true. Oh, Let it is. Okay. You. And a lot of Let people don't you. know who that was. Uh, I actually remember him when I first started watch, watching wrestling. Uh, his name was Tony Newberry. Uh, yeah, when Tony he wrestled Newberry. With, yeah, but, uh, but his, his, his big splash, actually, though, was uh, uh, Guido Mongo. Uh, exactly. Well, let me tell you, I just condensed that story there because, you know, we don't if we drew everything all the way out, we'd be here, we'd be here all night. More. But, yeah, after the after the uh, I met some of the guys that was on the tour, the Dale Man thing that worked for Guido, they said, OK, Guido's got a wrestling school in a barn in forget the name of the town now, but in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and he said, if I would put up the ring and whatnot for him too, that he would train me, you know, teach me the business and whatnot. So yeah, that was, that was in there, but uh, I still wasn't, I mean, I was, I didn't need a lot of money back then. Cause what the hell? I didn't have a mortgage or a car or anything. Right. But, but I went full time in the business, the major territory, which Kansas city was, and then Hawaii. But yes, in the meantime, Guido, I guess, officially trained me, but I was really learning as I as I went along. Now, he supposedly gave you your first gimmick name, if I got this right, Dr. Leonard Spazinski. Where did that yeah. come from? Guido, because if you remember back then, there was like, the, you know, every generation kids have different insults or whatever. Back then, if I didn't like you, I'd call you a spaz. Spaz, spaz. right, yeah. So Guido thought, if they call me that, the people in the audience, if I was manager, would say, spaz, spaz, man. It didn't work. It didn't have a ring to it. But that was his idea. Um, I didn't like the name. and I, You know, but, hey, I'm trying to get in the business. I finally realized something I never realized I was going to do for a living. And I decided then this is what I want to do. So when I finally got the opportunity to get myself a name uh, as a manager, there was a TV show called Simon and Simon, and Tim Reed, who's the African American actor that played. I remember him? Yeah, he played Venus Flytrap on WKRP. Correct. Yep, well, yep. On, but on Simon and Simon, he was like this cool city detective named Downtown Brown. So <laughs> I said, "Oh my!" Then Bruno's my real name, you know. I said, "Oh my God, I'm going to be Downtown Bruno from now on." So if I ever meet Tim Reed. Some way or another, in an airport or at a convention or just by happenstance, I'm going to credit him for giving me giving me my career. <laughs> I, I think he's still around. Yeah, he's still living. I would I would love to let him know that I got my name through him That's without him without him knowing it. Y'all don't mind me drinking beer and eating chicken wings. That's how I always do my interviews. Go, go yeah, for I, it. I watched another interview. You're eating the wings there as well. I, you know, I, I've said many times on the show that the style that Benny and I go for when we do interviews is if, if you're here, here in our conversations, like three guys sitting around at Hooters having a beer. So beer right. and chicken wings just adds to the feeling of what we're you going go. for. Uh, yeah. def definitely. I'm Italian. I like watching people eat. So enjoy. Well, so is Dan. <laughs> right. Gotcha. So what's up? Ask me, ask me anything you want. Go ahead, Benny. What are you thinking? All right. Well, um, so you uh, you eventually transitioned to Memphis and you debuted. And th 
I tell you what, you know, growing up in Long Island, I, I'm a WWF guy. And right. but as time has gone out on and I would say in the last 10 years, I had become a huge fan of, you know, the, the historical Memphis territory. So I believe you debuted as downtown Bruno in 1986. And uh, so you already told me uh, that how you got the name. But how did how did you get in the territory? Well, that's the territory I always wanted to be in. OK, um, besides WWF, of course. But I mean, territory, you know, that's where my family's from. That's where my mama was, was from, you know, and, and everybody, you know, originally that area in North Mississippi. So and I'd, I'd go visit my grandma. And that's the wrestling I would watch is the Memphis wrestling. So I always wanted to be there. But, of course, Jimmy Hart had it locked up as the manager. There was always like a secondary manager, maybe a female or, you know, like a guy like Tojo or somebody. There wasn't really a spot for me. Well, Lawler came to Hawaii in 80, 83, maybe. I'm the world's worst years, but he came over there when I was working for the Mavias. And, uh, Lawler likes having a manager. You know, of course, Jimmy Hart didn't travel with him to Hawaii. And Lawler seen me manage somebody else on the card there at the arena in, in Honolulu. So he asked uh, Rocky if I could go on and, and manage him on the card that night. And they said, yeah. So uh, Lawler loved my work. He loved my manager. And he said, well, you know, we got Jimmy Hart in Memphis, but, uh, you know, if he ever leaves or anything, well, uh, you know, give us a call. We'd love to have you come in. I think you'd be a good addition to the place. And that's where I always wanted to be. So I seen Jimmy Hart pop up on Vince's TV at one point. I said, oh, my God, this is my chance. Let me jump on it before somebody else gets that spot. And I called, you know, of course, there wasn't no cell phones or nothing back then. So I'd call Lawler's house because he gave me his home number. I called his house. I called the TV station on Saturday morning knowing he'd be there. Whatever, I finally ran him down. And then Randy Hales, uh, who was assistant booker or the booker's assistant, whatever at the time, uh, gave me a starting date. And then I went there and I ain't going to pat myself on the back or lie or brag. I'm going to be honest with you. I got over like a million dollars. And uh, I've, I've, you know, drew a lot of money and helped draw a lot of money in Memphis. Not by myself. I don't know. I was surrounded by some great teachers that taught me a lot and I can name all of them but I really did draw money because they built up to the point where finally when Lawler would get to me it would mean something so we uh you know it was a great run and you're what like you're all at 21 by then something around in there yeah wow that's amazing let me, let me actually expand on Memphis a little bit because it, it, the, the territories, especially Memphis, yeah, with our connection to like Jimmy Valiant, comes up a lot on the show. Right. Uh, Benny was putting some numbers together for us, and his research showed that Memphis was the 48th rated television market, but somehow the turnstiles, I mean, click, 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 the fans kept coming in. The Memphis Coliseum every Monday sold out. Uh, so, kind of a two part question. One, what, what was you was the magic there? Like, what you think made Memphis work so well? And you obviously were praising Jerry Lawler, but there were some other names too. Uh, you know, Sid Udy. You mentioned Rocky Johnson earlier uh, in Memphis. Uh, someone who comes up a lot is Jimmy Hart. I was wondering if you could kind of expand a little bit on on what made the magic in Memphis, and if you have any good stories from some of the people that really helped you there. Oh, absolutely. I that's, I love talking about that. Let me tell you, 
first of all, you got to remember, up until the point where, you know, Vince ruled the world, before cable was a big thing, only rich people had cable at one point, you know, everybody just had their local TV station. And as y'all know, I'm sure since y'all are both <laughs> into wrestling, every part of the country had their own territory. Every region, regional, that's where territory came about. So for a long time, the only wrestling people in the Mid-South area, in Upper Deep South, and you know, the area that Memphis TV was, that's the only wrestling they could see, period. So we were it. We were, that's why it drew. We weren't, they didn't have no comparison. They couldn't. So we're going to go up, drive up to uptown and watch WWE. They're coming to town. Or we're going to go, and I don't mention other companies on the WWE. I'm going to say some other organization comes in, go see them. No, this was it. And I'm going to tell you all something. You can look this up. I'm not lying. <clears throat> it's a fact. The local Memphis uh, ratings for the TV shows. Memphis wrestling was in the top 10 above Frazier, above Cheers, above Roseanne, about, above the Cosby show, whatever the main shows were in, you know, television at that time. In the Memphis market, Memphis wrestling was in the top 10 of all the shows. I mean, I'm, I think the only thing that beat us was like Monday Night Football or, you know, whatever. Memphis was wrestling was... I'm going to tell you how big it was. And this is, I always tell people this when I make a interview or a podcast or whatever. I'm not bragging about myself. I'm bragging about how strong that Memphis TV was. Okay. Before I tell this story, this is a true story. I couldn't go anywhere. Back when I was the hottest heel manager, I was on of an eight-segment TV show, I was probably in four to five segments almost every Saturday morning. I was featured like hell. I couldn't go nowhere. If I went to the Mall of Memphis, which ain't there no more, but back then it was the place to be, I couldn't walk around. People would surround me, okay? I couldn't just go eat at a restaurant unless it was a place that I knew the people and it was a regular or local place. I would be surrounded. And once again, I'm not, please understand, I'm not bragging on me. I'm bragging on how strong our TV was. And even to this day, my catchphrase was, it still is when I do an appearance or whatever. It's like mama says, it bees that way sometimes. And to this day, I might be in a, in a you know, lined up to get paid for my groceries or something here, in, you know, at home. And somebody will say, hey, man, it bees that way sometimes. People still remember that. It was over. And here's the big story. I was getting my my uh, tires, something done with my tires at the old Delta Tire on Cleveland Street in Memphis. It's not there no more, but I'll throw this fellow's name in there. A friend of mine named Ricky Winters used to uh, run it. And uh, anyway, I was getting some tire work done. He goes, well, Bruno, there's, there's like two cars ahead of you. I've got to finish them before I can get to you. I said, oh, man. I looked at my watch. He goes, there's a Burger King just two store doors down. Go down there and get you a bite to eat and get you some something to drink, some iced tea or whatever, and, you know, come back in about an hour, and I should have you ready to go. I said, okay. I walked down there. Well, about that time, a busload of kids from one of the Memphis elementary schools pulled up. They were on a field trip, or they went to the Memphis Zoo or something, and they came into the Burger King. I was already there 
had my food and everything. I was taking my time reading the newspaper because I had to kill time. <clears throat> anyway, them kids figured out who I was. They went nuts. They didn't, nothing violent or mean or evil, just they made such a scene that the people from Burger King called the Memphis police for crowd control. And they brought me back and I got, I ate my food like back in the back, like where the manager's office was or whatever. And I went out the back door back to Ricky's uh, tire place because I, I was so damn, no, our TV was so damn highly rated, highly watched. It was like, and people laugh at me, people that don't know this, that didn't live through that, which I did. But I said, I know what Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt and those people, John Travolta, whatever, feel like when they go out. Oh, Bruno, you're so full of it, blah, blah, blah. They don't know. That's how it was. Just in this area. I mean, if I went out in, you know, Chicago, Illinois or something back then, nobody would know who the hell I was because I wasn't on TV up there. But it was so strong here in Memphis. I'm telling you, that's the way it was. And that's, that's something that will never be replicated. Uh, I was a big fish in a small pond, and I loved every second of it. You know, Bruno, you just reminded me. You know, we've had Jimmy Vagan on the show a couple of times. Actually, he's, he's our sponsor. But after he turned heel in New York, he said he could not go. And even after that, wherever he wrestled, any of the other territories, he could not. And this, we're talking in the 70s. He could not go out to eat with his family. He couldn't go to church with his family because that's how real wrestling was to, to the folks back then. That I mean, they thought he was a real, they thought he was a bad guy. He said he never had a car that didn't get vandalized. It's just, I mean, that is how serious people took their wrestling back then. That's but, the truth. And, but, yeah. you know, getting back to Memphis, you know, Dan asked the question about the magic. You know, when you think about it, you know, being that small of a, a city, though, to have to, to pack that Mid-South Coliseum in every Monday night for like, not even for, you know, six months, wasn't a fad. It was decades. So, I mean, what was that was was uh, Jerry Jarrett, the, 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 you know, the driving force? Was it Lawler? Who, you know, who, as far as the creativity aspect of it, was it both well, of them together? No, let me tell you. Here's how it always worked up until, as far as I know, up until Jerry Jarrett, you know, left the organization, sold his part out or whatever. It was always the same thing. Uh, Lawler would book for six months and Little Man, that was Jerry Jarrett's that, name. Little Man would book for six months. Sometimes in the middle of Lawler's booking, he'd let Dutch take over the book. Or in the middle of Jerry Jarrett's booking, he would let Bill Dundee take over the book. Or Eddie Gilbert take over. Well, no, Lawler would let Eddie Gilbert take over the book. But it was up to Lawler. But for six months, it was Lawler. For six months, it was Little Man. That's how it, it always uh, went. So they both had different ways of booking. Uh, but they were both extremely successful in whatever they did. They just did it in different manners. But... Uh, so you got to give credit to both but, uh, as far as the creative end, but as far as somebody that from time immemorial in Memphis, nobody's in second place. Lawler is the most, I don't care who you mention. Yeah, there's a lot of guys that got over. A lot of guys got over real well, but nobody like Lawler, period. Nobody, nobody. He's like Elvis and the Beatles. Nobody's even in second place. It's all Lawler, I mean, when he would pull the strap, that Coliseum would come unglued. It was like the only person I've ever seen that over 
during my days in the ring as a manager or a referee or whatever. And bear in mind, I was never a manager or a referee or anything for anything John Cena did or The Rock, who was my closest friend, Stone Cold. I was in the ring with them before they were, you know, how they are now or how they became. But I'm saying I wasn't. So I can't say what it would be like to be in the ring, the feeling when The Rock's music hit or Stone Cold's or John Cena's. So bear in mind, I'm not downgrading anyone. I'm saying I wasn't in the ring for that. But the only person I was ever in the ring for that even had the same uh, reception, the same amount of like electricity was Hulk Hogan, period, end of story. When I was in the ring with a, with a guy, I imagine, and Hogan's music hit, it was like worldwide what Lawler's was here in our area. So that's the truth. Lawler was so damn over. I can't even explain it. He was... He was he was the man. Without him, I don't know what we would have done. You know, although he kind of vacillated, he kept switching back from babyface to heel. But right. um, he was you now. I, I again, I grew up in in New York, and back in the day, Bruno, he Jerry Lawler was. It seems like Jerry Lawler was was the Bruno San Martino of Memphis in terms of the crowd pop that he would get and the right. adulation he got. Absolutely, absolutely, and. Uh, and, you know, but here's the thing you mentioned before about other guys. Yeah, like I said, Lawler was the man. No ifs, ands, buts, or maybes. But one person ain't enough. You got to have a, be surrounded by a whole group of people that are good. There was a lot of people that were over. And y'all know what over means, but for the listeners that might not, over means, if you don't know, somebody that the people love to hate or hate to love but will pay to see. Okay, that means you're over. You're somebody that matters. You're somebody that's relevant. Okay, we had a lot of people that were over. Uh, myself, <laughs> you know, I, I got to plug myself. But, absolutely. But, but yeah, though, go for it. Yeah, but That's why you're here. Absolutely. Yeah, but superstar Bill Dundee was over. Eddie Hot Stuff Gilbert, Doug Gilbert, Tommy Gilbert, Tommy Rich, Tojo Yamamoto, uh, Phil Hickerson, Dennis Condry. Uh, Akio Sato, Tarzan Goto. Um, God, I'm not even. I'm very, I'm not even scratching the surface yet. Tracy Smothers, Billy Travis, Jeff Jarrett. Uh, gosh, G- I mean, Jimmy, I, I, Jimmy Valiant. Yeah, yeah, handsome Jimmy. Yeah, of course. Uh, King Kong Bundy. Uh, when he came through, Rick Rude. When he came through, um, there was a lot of guys that came through, and a lot of us more or less were Austin Idol. Can't forget him. Austin Idol. I've seen him last week on an appearance. Yeah, Austin Idol. Uh, over. Uh, Paul Heyman came in as Paul dangerously. Right. He, yeah. he got over. Um, you know, it's, it's was, oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to cut you off. I thought you were finished. You, you know, it, it's funny that because well, some of those names you've mentioned, we've had the pleasure of talking to. We've talked to family. Benny was telling us, you know, about how like the, the heels couldn't go anywhere. I remember our interview with the daughter of Bad News Allen, how, you know, how you had to be real careful about character. Um, but it's funny how everybody we've talked to, either their fondest memories of wrestling seem to come from Memphis, or if they have one regret or one thing they would have changed, they would have either liked to have spent more time in Memphis or they didn't get a chance to wrestle in Memphis. And it was just so it's, – it's crazy how the list you just named, you know, if you were to put together top 50 greatest stars, you just mentioned half of them. I mean, some of the best talent ever – 
has come through there. And if there's one thing, love, good, bad, or indifferent, because we've heard we I'm not gonna lie, we, we've heard not every story we've heard about the 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 faces running Memphis has been positive, but you cannot argue with the just phenomenal eye for talent that they had. Oh yeah, and I mean I I didn't even scratch the surface yet. I mean you know we had the fabulous ones, Steve Kerr and Stan Lane. Steve's one of my closest friends in the business. You you had Kurt Hennig came through. You had the Rock and Roll Express started the gimmick in Memphis. You know mm-hmm. Kamala started in Memphis. Uh, Iron Sheik, Jerry King Lawler is the one that that uh, airbrushed that picture of the Ayatollah on that flag that the Sheik carried with him up to the last days of his his career. You know, the Iron Sheik, you know, God rest his soul, Cosro, one of my dear friends, he credits Jerry Lawler for, for getting him to the position he wound up in in the business. You know, uh, uh, Jerry Lawler came up with the Kamala gimmick. Uh, look who else came through Memphis? The Undertaker, the uh, Kane. I mean, I'm, I'm being, I can't even keep going because I'll be here all night and I'm going <laughs> to miss somebody. So I'm going to leave it at that. Right. A uh, little trivia for y'all and for everybody else. The last match that Mark Calloway ever had uh, in his career before he became who he, the phenom, the undertaker, the Hall of Famer, and the legend that he is, and deservedly so is, the last match he ever had before he became undertaker was in Memphis, Tennessee. I was his manager only that night. I'd never managed him before because when he was in Memphis, Dutch Mantel managed him at one point, I believe, in Ronnie Gossett managed him at one point. But when he came back in for that tournament for the, I believe it was the USWA title or one of the titles we had in Memphis, it was a it was a uh, one-night tournament to determine who became the champion. He wrestled Bill Dundee and he wrestled Jerry Lawler that night with me as his manager. And that was the last time he ever uh, wrestled as not Undertaker. So I, and that's on the YouTube, the match with me managing him against those two, you know, Memphis legends. So that's something I can be proud of. Just just out of curiosity, you remember who won that tournament? No, it wasn't us. I know I know. Dundee got disqualified because he rolled, or not, no, he got counted out. Because I kept interfering in the match. <laughs> so Dundee rolled out of the ring, slung me against the, the uh, barrier, and was kicking me or punching me or whatever he was doing. And he got lost, you know, quote, unquote, lost track of time. And, uh, you know, uh, lost the match due to that reason. I know it wasn't us that won, so I can't remember. I don't remember if it was Law. I don't remember who it was, but it wasn't us. Well, good thing, because he would have been gone. You know? <laughs> right. So, but, yeah, so that's, my, that's my Undertaker story. He's a great guy. Before we get guy. into uh, the WWF, there's, when I do these podcasts, there's always one question that I really look forward to asking, and this was the one. So, And I've been waiting all night to ask this. Um, you, you, you mentioned spending time in Kansas City and you know, obviously some huge names there like Bob Geigel, Harley Race. Uh, I believe Pat O'Connor was there for a while. Uh, Marty Jannetty. Pat was, Pat was a St. Louis promoter. Okay. And Marty Jannetty got his start there. But one guy that I have never, you know, like you watch wrestlers and you, you know, as a wrestling fan for 55 years, I can always usually figure out why somebody gets over or, you know, why they're, you know, they're at the top of the card. One guy I can never get is Bulldog Bob Brown. You know, this oh is just, my God. just my opinion. But th- that guy, he looks like he, he should be on lane 27 of the uh, Wednesday night beer league instead of a, a wrestling ring. What, 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 
put him on top. Some reason, for some reason, Bob Geiger liked him. I don't know why. Nobody else did. Nobody. He couldn't work. His his punches looked like they wouldn't break an egg. He couldn't bump. I mean, <laughs> his talking I, was terrible. I don't think his promos are very good. He was a jerk. He was a liar and a jerk. Okay. We were in Fort Scott, Kansas one night. And he was working with uh, Earthquake Ferris, who I was managing. And Bob Geiger wasn't there that night. I don't know who was taking care of the the uh, event. It might have been Bulldog that night. I can't remember. But he told me to come up on the apron at one point. He was going to headbutt me. He wanted me to get color. I don't like to explain that. So if somebody don't know what that means, let him look it up. But you know what? Y'all know what that means. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he told me to get color. So next day we get back to Kansas City. We had to go do interviews. We used to do the interviews at a, a TV station on, uh, I think it was Prospect Avenue. I can't remember. But anyway, I walked in and I was all cut up, gaffed up. Bob Geigel was always there for that, producing the interviews. And he says, uh, what happened? And I told him what happened. So when we got to the house show that night in Kansas City, uh, Bob Brown and uh, Bob Geigel called me. I'm sorry, Bob Geigel called me into the room and Bob Brown was sitting there. And Bob Brown looked at Bob Geigel and said, I never told him to do any such thing. Because Bob Bob Geigel didn't want me doing all that. Uh, And I told him, because Bulldog told me to. He denied it. He lied through his teeth. Looking right at me in the eye and looking at Bob Geigel in the eye and lied through his teeth. He told me, why would I hell would I do it without being told to do it? I'm not queer for the blade. I don't care. It was, he was a jerk. Nobody liked him. Nobody liked him. And he I had mean, a he, nephew that's, that named, uh, named Carrie Brown that was a horrible worker and just a goof. He came with a cowboy hat on one day or whatever. Well, that cowboy hat became missing. It was never seen from again. I, I ain't going to say who did it. <laughs> it wasn't me. Very good, Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, there you go. It's like, right. But, I mean, he was uh, the Central States champion like 11 times. And, like, I've watched many, many a clip on the guy. I'm going, why? I just I just don't get it. He must have known somebody. Well, Geigel liked him for some reason. That's all I can say. And I love Bob Geigel. It tore me up when they said he ended up with, like, Alzheimer's or dementia. And then he died. I would have really liked it before he got down, you know, mentally. I would have loved to have a conversation with him again. It, it, it wasn't a bad territory, you know, besides that. I mean, some of the, you know, some I've seen many a match. Wrestling quality was good, but ex- except for him. I agree. We had a good crew out there. When I was there, it was Porkchop, Cash, Rufus R. Jones, Mike George, Janetti, uh, uh, Earthquake Ferris, the Batten Twins, who I loved. Bratt and Bart, right? Brad yeah, Bart. they were always baby faces. When I came in there, they went right to uh, Rip Rogers, who was doing the book. A good friend of mine. Just seen him. Pre- previous guest on our show, too. Great guy. And they told Rip, we want to turn heel. We want Bruno to be with us. And that's what happened. And I traveled with those guys the whole time I was in that territory. And I loved those guys. We lost uh, Brad. We lost Brad. Uh, I got his a 
obituary on my wall somewhere, but we lost him like, I, I'm, I'm the world's worst for years, like I told you. I believe it was like five years ago or something. Uh, I got so much, I don't know what, but yeah, he was a great guy. It tore me up when he passed away. Well, Benny started that. He he mentioned your, uh, you know, he wanted to talk before your transition um, to the WWF. I want to kind of get into that. I believe it was 1991. You would have been all of 26 years old. So kind of a two-part question there. So you, you transitioned to the WWF. One, who was responsible for getting you in? And two, why did you change your name to Dr. Harvey Whippleman? Did that have anything to do with Bruno San Martino? No, no, no. I didn't change my name to it. WWE did. Uh, F E, you know, it was right F back then. But um, well, you know, Bruno's my real name. I can show you my birthday certificate. So they can't copyright that, and that's simple as that. So they came up with with that other name, which I didn't care as long as it said Bruno Lauer on the pay stub. I don't give a damn. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, and I give the credit to Sid. You know, he heard that there was a. They were wanting to get, at that time, they were using lots of managers. Damn near every heel had a manager, even some of the baby faces. So Sid got me to try out. And uh, Sid opened the door for me. And I, I'll be grateful to him from now on. And then, you know, when I got there, Vince McMahon, great guy. Pat Patterson, God bless him, great guy. They told me, look, Sid opened the door, but you're the one that has to, you know, walk through it. He goes, you're not going to get a job here just because Sid likes you, you know. You know, and but I, you know, and I'm not bragging, but I'm good at what I do, or I was then. I probably couldn't now, but I, you know, I got over with them, and, and I, I'm grateful for the, you know, the opportunity. But yeah, I, Sid was a great help, great help. He, he's the one. And of course, at that time, I'd already been in the business for eleven or twelve years, so I probably knew seventy percent of the the uh, roster in the WWE. At the time, from whatever territories, about at, after that point, besides Memphis, I'd already been right. to Alabama twice, Kansas City twice, Louisiana once, Hawaii uh, twice, um, and you know Knoxville territory. So I've been a lot of places. I knew a lot of guys. So um, that helped too, because I didn't. I can honestly say I don't think anybody's ever said anything bad about me because I have never given nobody a reason to. Right. So. Bruno, I, I once heard Jimmy Hart on a, uh, doing an interview, and he was talking about the differences between Memphis and the WWF uh, in terms of money, method of travel, you know, the quality of the hotels, et cetera. So can you can you give me your own take on that? Because you were what, maybe 26 when you got in um, to the, you know, what I, I call it the greatest show on earth, uh, traveling literally all over the world. What did it feel like being that age? And I mean, what was the pay that much more than Memphis? Well, you know, it's funny. Yeah, it was, it was, the pay was more because we're in bigger arenas, bigger cities. You know, Memphis, we had the big city of Memphis, the big city of Nashville, the big city of Louisville, Kentucky, and big city of Lexington, Kentucky. Um, and then Evansville was mid-sized city, Jackson, Tennessee, mid-sized city. But basically in the Memphis territory, which again, remember, it's a territory. Um, you also had your mid-sized cities like Jonesboro, Blyville, whatever, but you also had your small towns, you know, we'd, we'd wrestle in Fairview, Mississippi, or, or, or Mount Pleasant, Tennessee, or whatever, 
and naturally you're not going to have the big huge auditoriums that you're in a high school gym or a national guard armory or whatever so the pay wasn't as good they weren't unfair with the pay i want to make sure everybody understands that <laughs> they paid according to the house i mean you had a minimum guarantee no matter what but don't forget WWE had the luxury of being in a different big city every night, a city of, you know, a million people. You could be in Miami, the next day Houston, the next day Dallas, the next day Sacramento, the next day, you know, I can pull out my road out and just read out, you know, major cities. So, yeah, you could be in a, in a 10, 15, 20,000 seat arena every night and most of the time selling it out or coming close to it. Where in our territory, of course, we were in the Coliseum every Monday night, Louisville Garden every Tuesday, Evansville uh, Coliseum every uh, Wednesday, Nashville uh, Sports Arena every Saturday. That's every week, every week, every week. Now, if WWE was in Los Angeles every week, I don't think it would sell out every week. And that's nothing against WWE. It's like, okay, we, we can't afford this every week. And ticket prices are much higher for WWE, too, because it's only a once or twice or three times a year event and that's what it is an event it ain't just a show it's an event so basically what i'm saying is it's certainly no insult to the memphis territory or any other territory that's just the facts of life the facts of the business and it's you know those of us that have made their living in the business in the territory days understand that and and realize that's the way it is so I'm I'm a career finance guy. Somehow I got into this. I I, I still don't know how. But so how did that work though with uh, WWF? As far as were you paid like a set amount or like were you paid a, a percentage of the gate? And then what did, what did they cover as far as you know? Did they cover your your travel? Did they cover your uh, your you know your hotel and things like that? So did you? I mean I guess I should have asked the question. I mean obviously Memphis was a scaled down version and your expenses were less. But did you did you wind up with more money in your pocket at the end of the day with WWF? Well, yeah, like I said a minute ago, for that reason, you know. But uh, and as far as I, I'll say this, to you, I'll be as diplomatic as I can. As far as what WWE covers, yes, the, the airfare they cover. You get your plane tickets, okay. Now, as far as everything else, everybody's got their own deal. So I'd rather not even respectfully say what. I got because maybe some other guy didn't get what I got, or maybe some guy got what I didn't get. You know, so everybody's got their own arrangement, and and I I respect that. So uh, other than everybody's airfare is covered, you know, in the story. But as far as anything else, uh, yeah, you know, everybody's got their own deal. So I I'll just leave that one on the table. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Well. So you're in the WWF. You're you're like you said. You, we've transitioned into the Harvey Whippleman character. Your initial gig, you were managing Big Bully Busick. I can I can respect the man with that kind of facial hair. Um, from there, I, it, you went on to manage Sid, Warlord, no, no. Kamala, Adam Bomb, Quang, Well Done, and uh, Giant Gonzalez, of course. Uh, did you have a favorite among them? Uh, the the rest, various wrestlers that you managed through your time there. Yeah, well, what I was when I said no, I wasn't correct. I was saying order-wise, it was war. I mean, it was Busick, then Warlord, then Sid, then Kamala, then Gonzalez. Uh, let me think. After Gonzalez, after Gonzalez was Adam. Uh, no, after Gonzalez was Mister Hughes. 
Oh, okay. Okay. After Mr. Hughes was Quang. After so Quang was Adam Bomb. Or it might have been vice versa, but either way. Quang, then, then it was uh, Well Done, which was uh, Steve Dahl and, uh, and uh, Rex King. And then it was uh, Moolah. Then it was Bertha Faye. Oh, Ronda Singh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know what kills me? Let's see. Of all those people, Busek's dead. Gonzalez is dead. Uh, well done, are both dead. They're young guys. Uh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's dead. a surprise. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, oh, my God. Damn near everybody. Over 50% of the people I manage are dead. God bless them, even the ones I didn't like. And I mean that. Even people in the business I didn't like, I'm never happy when I hear they die. Yeah. I'm not that way. I mean, that's just not me. I'm a Christian, Roman Catholic. Behind my house, the fence behind my house abuts to Sacred Heart Catholic Church here in Wallace, Mississippi, where I was baptized. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I hate it when somebody dies, even if I didn't like them. And there's a whole lot I didn't like. Two Italian boys here. And I'm not going to mention none of them because why would I justify that? Plus, I want to keep this positive and upbeat. I don't want to start thinking about people I don't like. No, (laughs) I get it. So, Bruno, everybody thinks of downtown Bruno and Harvey Whippleman as the prototypical cowardly heel manager. Uh, But now Bruno Lauer, the man, uh, from what I've heard, is one of the most generous people I know. You bought a, a car for a, a struggling Memphis wrestler named Flex Cavana, who I think he became something in the business eventually. And uh, and in fact, I think you actually even took him in for a while. And I don't have all, no now, idea who you're talking about. Yeah, yes, sir. And uh, you also actually, uh, I heard that you assisted Giant Gonzalez financially. Uh, after he left MWF, and uh, he found, he suffered some financial setbacks in Argentina. Um, I saw a clip on Sunday that actually brought tears to my eyes. It was The Rock presenting you with a brand-new uh, Ford F-150 truck in gratitude for everything you've done for him. And, um, you know, I think all of this is a great life lesson. You know, when you do something for someone, uh, at the time it might be very small to you, but, it, you know, at that time, it made me mean the absolute world to that person. Right. And, uh, you know, and you never give to get back. But, I mean, it's just a great feel-good story when, when, when a genuine act of kindness like you did with, with Rock um, is repaid. Yeah, because I've known him since he was a little boy. And we were always close. Always. And when he came to Memphis starting out wrestling, I refereed 90% of his matches, and I would talk to him in the ring and help him. I'd tell him, don't do that, do this, do that, I'd help him. I remember he'll tell you, friend or no friend, it was business, and I was in there to help him. Like, for example, if a guy was uh, kicking his leg for five, ten minutes, and all of a sudden Rock was making his comeback, or Flex at the time was making his comeback, he'd be like running the ropes. I'd say, hey, dumbass. All of a sudden, you're Superman, your leg don't hurt no more. Then it starts sounding his leg again. You know, and he would laugh. We'd laugh in the back about it. Remember one night, we were in Nashville at the fairgrounds, and uh, PG-13, Jamie Dundee and, and Wolfie D were out there wrestling. Dwayne was at the table signing autographs. 
So he came, Randy Hales went and got him. He said, hey, you ain't supposed to be out there siding when there's people in the ring. Get back here. Get back here. And he started giving him a hard time about it. He goes, tell him, Bruno, tell him, tell him. And I said, ah. <laughs> and Dwayne laughed. And Randy goes, both of you, get out of my dressing room. I said, okay, let's go. And we left. <laughs> so I, I'm sure you've heard this question before, and and but I'm going to ask it anyway. When when you first saw him, uh, now obviously, I mean, I know you're not going to say that when you first saw him, you thought, man, this guy's going to be, you know, the greatest you know, movie star in the world someday. But right. what, what did you think of him as far as his talent and his his desire when you first when you first saw him? Well, don't forget when I first saw him, he was like 10 years old or whatever. You know, we were I knew him since forever uh he first moved in with me when he was 14 so there was no talent to see then he was just a guy that would that was taller than me and bigger than me and had a mustache that would drive me around where i could back then i had a had a uh, little bit of a drinking problem i was getting in trouble for it even went to jail a couple times i still drink my beer but that's all i do what brand is that by the way i mean i've been meaning to ask you i've got miller light tonight but i drink all miller right. light i drink Coors Light. I just drink regular, you know, nine to five beer. I don't drink. You mean it's not a downtown Bruno Al? No, downtown Bruno just wants to do is just relax and not do nothing extra. (laughs) Yeah, right. We lose money at. (laughs) But but no, anyway, yeah. uh, When he first now, just jumping ahead or back to the question. Yeah, when when I first knew him. He was just a kid. He wasn't in the wrestling or whatever. But when he came to start wrestling, yes, you're right. I ain't going to sit here and lie. Oh, I knew immediately he'd be the best. No. He was obviously very talented, very athletic, good-looking guy. I knew he definitely had the potential to be, you know, somebody that belonged in our profession. But did I see him going to the heights that, you know, that he rose to, not instantly. As time went on, you could definitely see it coming. But not just me, everybody could see that. But no, not at first, no. I I mean, I knew he'd be in our business and do well, but not to the point that he did, that he's definitely, without doubt, in the top 10, if not the top five of all time. As far as drawing money and getting hope, there's no doubt. If anybody says different, they're they're wrong. Now, now who came up with the name Flex Cavana? I have to know that. He did. As, did he really? Wow. Yeah, it was his, it was his idea. Well, we talked about, I mean, obviously you've got some great stories about things you've done for others and, and the accolades you've given to others. I want to talk a little bit about an accolade you had um, obviously to most of our listeners and, and especially some of the younger fans, uh, anyone under the age of 40, you're, you're most known for your tuxedo match with the Fink, which classic stuff, by the way, absolutely love it. And I'm usually not a fan of some of the more, the, 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 the side types, but um, you were actually the continental United States heavyweight champion. You won the title According to no, the law, junior heavyweight, junior, junior heavyweight. heavyweight, excuse me. Uh, you won the title September 22nd, 1989. Can you kind of tell the story about how that happened? Yeah, we were in Knoxville, which was part of the Continental Territory uh, at the time. And the title somehow became vacant. That I don't remember why. 
maybe the guy that had it quit or got fired or whatever. I don't know. It became vacant. So uh, I, I remember I, it, it's vague to me, but roughly, roughly, uh, Ron Fuller, who ran the Knoxville end of the territory, uh, said something about, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about on TV, you know, whatever, why well, there's championships held up, held up. And I came out there and said, well, I, you should just give it to me. I'll be the, I deserve it, blah, 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 you know, whatever. He goes, no, I'm not just going to give you this championship, but I'll let you earn it. And then Butch Cassidy, the midget wrestler, came out. I don't know if that's politically correct now. That's little person, whatever. I don't, I don't know. I didn't say it to be, <laughs> I don't know. But at that no, time, midget, he came out and attacked me and was beating me up. And then we had a, a match, and I somehow won the championship from him. And I kept it up until Continental uh, closed his doors, I believe. But uh, that's how that happened. And Butch Cassidy, great guy. I loved the guy. I think he still lives up around Knoxville. But he didn't. He was a midget or a little person or whatever you want to call it. And uh, whatever people want to call it, I respect that. I just don't know. But anyway, he uh, didn't wrestle or work in the midget style. He didn't do the funny, you know, kick you in the butt and run away and bite your nose. You know, he wrestled just like a regular sized uh, person. And he was stiff. He was stiff. I mean, he would clock the hell out of me in the ring. But we had regular matches. It wasn't midget matches, you know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I became the uh, Continental uh, uh, Junior Heavyweight Champion. Nice. <laughs> So th there's one more thing I have to know. So I, I found this video, and I know you, have, besides being a manager in Memphis, you're also a referee. I found this video on YouTube, which I absolutely love. It's called When Downtown Bruno Attacks. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners what that's all about? And they, they have to watch that. That's mandatory. Yeah, every single podcast I do, they bring that up, and they usually plug it in so people can watch it. Let me tell you what happened. Back towards the final days of the Memphis Territory, some guy named Larry Burton came in, and they hired him to, I don't know what, revamp the organization or, you know, streamline it or save money. I don't know what the hell. He did a horrible, piss-poor job, let's put it like that. But anyway, first thing he did was he came in. You know, Dave Brown, Lance Russell had already left for, I think he went to work for the Turner, you know, organization or whatever at the time but dave brown who was our announcer and commentator for years and years and years yeah uh, larry burton says well we got this guy named tony friedman that was on uh, uh broadcasting school he said he'll do it for free so he got rid of dave brown and Corey macklin because they were you know wanting to be paid of course and then larry burton told me well, we're not going to pay you anymore to referee on TV because Bill Rush will do it for free. Bill Rush is the guy that did it part-time. He worked at an auto parts house in East Memphis somewhere. And I said, if you're not going to pay me, I'm not going to do it. I said, this is my living. I said, what if I went over to the auto parts house and said I'll sell auto parts for free? Would he like that? And I'm not putting it on Bill Rush. I, I don't dislike him. For Larry Burton to even put me in that position. So here's what set it up. Larry Burton said, well, not only that, he's better than you. 
I just couldn't take it anymore. Because Larry Burton's got it would F with you every week about something. That whole the whole Memphis organization was at a boiling point about that time because he had everybody upset. And I just couldn't take it no more. And I leaned back and I punched him in the face as hard as I could. I mean, look at me. I'm not a big guy. And I'm certainly ain't a violent guy. It would take a lot to get me to do that. You know, and it took a lot. And I did it. That he grabbed me by the throat and I grabbed him by the throat. Lawler and Mike Samples heard this screaming going on. They ran into the room we was at. They pulled us apart. They was laughing at the time. Because it was so out of character for me to attack somebody violently. But I did. And long story short, Larry Burton, you're fired. You're fired. And I was in charge. Of, I was refereeing, but I was in charge of the rings at the time, too. So I'm getting ready to leave. Tony Friedman, the guy that took Dave Brown's job, is out there announcing or commentating next to Michael St. John. Michael St. John was a pretty good guy. And I think he was getting paid, but not nearly as much as Dave and Corey, I'm sure. That's why they were using it. Anyway, I'm standing there and Lawler's like, Jesus Christ, Bruno, I didn't know we had a, a new Bruiser Brody on our, our hands or whatever. <laughs> I said, I want to go out there on, on that live TV and beat the shit out of Tony Friedman. He goes, I dare you. I said, hold my glasses. I ran through that curtain, jumped over that desk, and I beat that son of a, that guy until they came Ironically, one of the people that pulled me off of him was Bill Rush. And when James Beard and Bill Rush and somebody else were pulling me off of him, James Beard had my arms hooked behind my back. Bill Rush sucker punched me. You can see oh, no. it on the video. So wait, that whole thing was a, it was, it was a shoot? Damn right it was a shoot. Oh, wow. Okay. 100%. Wow. Wow. That was that on that. But check this out. Like I said, uh -oh. I was in charge of the rings. So they said, oh, we got a guy named Tony Myers that'll uh, do the ring. He says he figured out a way he can do it all by himself. He don't need a ring crew. So they fired my ring crew. I was fired. <laughs> you can't put up a ring by yourself. I don't give a damn who you are. There's no formula for it. He would try to, like, recruit people out, off the street to help him, and nobody wanted to put up a ring. Uh, long story short. The next Saturday morning on live Memphis TV with Larry Burton's great find to put up the ring, Tony Myers, with no ring crew, the ring fell down on live TV. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, now bear in mind, this is 30 years ago or whatever. There was no cell phones back then or, 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 or texting or nothing like that. You remember we used to have an answering machine on our table next to our phone. Or some phones are is built in. But whatever. Had a tape in it or whatever. Yeah, he actually had to change the little little cassettes. Right. And then like if I called you, there was no caller ID back then either, don't don't forget. So if I called you and you didn't answer and hi, this is this is Ben, this is Dan, whatever. Hey man, pick up. It's me, Bruno. And you'd pick up if you were there, or if you want to talk to me, you know. Or if you didn't, I'd leave a message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they knew me and Steve Dahl. <clears throat> excuse me. Me and Steve Dahl were good friends, and he was working the territory at the time. So I'm sitting at my house, 20 minutes from the TV station, watching the show, watching there's the ring collapsed. Steve Dahl goes, "Hey, Bruno, how you doing?" He goes, "Don't pick up, don't pick up. I know you're watching." Uh, yeah, Bruno. Um, 
they've decided to uh, reinstate you after all. So if you want to come back, don't pick up, don't pick up. Um, yeah, um, you know, if you want to come back up to the station, I mean, as quick as you can, really. I know you're laughing now. Um, yeah, don't uh, don't hesitate. You're you're reinstated. Okay, talk to you later. Of course, I didn't pick up. And he was more or less telling me, ha, 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 screw them. Look what happened. And that's <laughs> so later that Burton and him called me. And I said, I'll come back. I said, but there's going to be a few little concessions. And if you don't do it, I'm sorry. What's that? Tony Myers is out of here. And me and my ring crew are back. Period. I ain't doing it by myself. I'm not Tony Myers. You can't, obviously. So I get Chili Willie and Fat Raymond hired back. I get hired back with a little bit more money than I was making before than Tony Myers. Nice. So that's the moral of the story is you can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit. There's no formula for it. You Doesn't can't work. put up a right. ring by yourself, and especially if you don't know how to put up a ring. Yeah. Well, in the story. So as, that. As, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's that's that story. I just said that's the that's the exclamation point and the period on that story. Well, nice. as as Bruno, as we get ready to wrap up, I have two things I kind of want to ask you about. One is, I mean, I mentioned you're you know you're well known as, as for your tuxedo match with the Fink and your feud there, but uh, lesser known is, uh, but still a really prominent moment was you were the fire throwing cameraman that ended Hulkamania. Uh, I was hoping you could kind of expand on that, like how, how that idea came about with using you in that role and, and, and how soon that was thrown together. And the second in, I believe it was 2000, 2001, you were a very short-lived WWF women's champion. I, I would love to hear the story behind that pitch meeting, if you wouldn't mind. Well, the, the thing with the camera exploding in Hogan's face and all that, um, it wasn't necessarily to get me over because they didn't really reveal me as that. I mean, a lot of people figured it out. Right. It was honestly the reason they had me do it instead of just some random, you know, backstage guy that worked for WWE or whatever. Uh, they knew I was experienced. I'd been in the business 20 years at the time or whatever. They knew I would know my cue and my spot. And then if somehow the, me and Hogan already discussed it. And somehow the camera malfunctioned or whatever. We had, we had plan B, you know, which if it would have been just some, you know, one of the ring crew or whatever, and they asked him to do it, they would, they would have been petrified, you know, so that's how that came about. Um, the uh, women's championship thing, long story short, Stacy, who was the cat, mm -hmm. who was my best friend, Jeremy King Lawler's uh, wife. Lawler, right? They had put the championship on her. But they wanted it on Jacqueline, you know, Jacqueline Moore, who's an athletic, stout, right. tough girl. Okay. Um, Stacy, great girl, beautiful girl. We've always been friends. I, I have nothing bad to say about her. But in all honesty, she wasn't a wrestler, per se. Okay. Me and her had a lot of gimmick matches in Memphis. Which was ha-ha matches, you know. She'd grab me in a full Nelson, and I couldn't get out of it. I'd reach for the ropes. I'd finally put both my feet on the top rope. The referee would make her break. I'd fall and take a bump and sell, you know, stuff like that. 
as far as her getting in there and having a match with Jacqueline, forget it. Jacqueline, like I said, she wasn't a mean person or a bad person. She was a good worker, but she was stiff and she was snug in the ring. Well, if she got in the ring and started, you know, manhandling Stacy, it would have it would have injured her. Seriously. Right. So I was basically the transition person to get the championship off of the cat and on to Jacqueline. I mean, that's that's basically how that worked out. It was a little diversionary match. And and uh, you know, giving people a little very little bit of entertainment, and that was that on that. I got you. Well, Benny, as, as like I said, we're getting ready to wrap up. Um, final question to you. What are you thinking? Yeah, so Bruno, um, I, again, Wikipedia, you were elected to the Board of Aldermen in your hometown of Walls, Mississippi in 2021. Um, so the, the question is, could we possibly see a Bruno Lauer presidential run in 2028? And if so, can Dan and I serve on your campaign uh, uh, crew? Fellas, that is out of the question because I going up there for that. There will be another run in 2025 for Alderman here in Walls. That's as far as I want to go politically. Here well, well, we'll still volunteer for that. Hey, I, I would love it if you would. I'm going to tell you this. When that time comes, I'm going to need all the publicity I can get. And just like I said about Memphis wrestling, I'm going to say it about here in my hometown. I love being a big fish in a small pond. You know, I've been swimming with the sharks my whole career. And I don't want to go to Washington, D.C. because that's the shark tank. You know, you think Mark Cuban and them are the shark tank? Go to Washington, D.C. That's the shark tank. I ain't going. There you have it. Well, uh, Bruno, final thought to you. Um, I know you, you, we were talking before we got to recording. You're not active on social media, but there is plenty of, of between YouTube and Facebook, there's a lot of, of downtown Bruno, Harvey Whippleman stuff out there. But I want to end this with you. Not really a final question, just more of a final thought to you. Uh, if you can't say yourself, Mount Rushmore of wrestling managers. You know, here's, here's what's funny. Like I see all the time. I don't have no social media, but I do look at websites and, you know, whatnot. And I always ask the people, Mount Rushmore of wrestlers, Mount Rushmore of managers, whatever. And I can honestly say this, and my Bible's in the other room. If, if it was right here, I'd put my hand on it, let you see it. I think asking that about a manager, Mount Rushmore, a wrestler, whatever, it's impossible. There's too many guys that were too good to narrow it down to four. As a manager, as a wrestler, as a, a color commentator, whatever, I just... I can't do it. There's too many. And I would be insulting ones that, you know, like if you ask me the wrestling ones, I mean, Jesus Christ, Jerry the King Lauder, Dusty Rhodes, Bob Armstrong, Robert Fuller, uh, you know, uh, The Rock, uh, Stone Cold, John Cena. I mean, I couldn't do it. And as far as managers, I couldn't do it either. So many great ones. Uh, Bobby Heenan, the Grand Wizard, uh, Jimmy Hart. Uh, like I said, I can't say myself, but I mean, I, I, I'm sure I would be on somebody's list maybe you know it is right but no i can't i can't narrow nothing down to four people and i think it's a fool's errand when people try to i mean look who's the best worker i don't know jerry king lawler jake roberts magnificent morocco greg valentine what there's so many yeah yeah i can't do it and i think i, I wish they'd stop to be honest with you i wish they'd stop asking people to do that because i think it's an unfair question and i'm not directing that to you dan i'm just saying in general 
No, I get it. I can respect that. I know we, we bring it up a lot, usually when we talk territories, because, you know, like you said, there's so much global talent through the years. But even, I mean, when you when you went through Memphis, you mentioned 20 names that would, right. would could, could go on half a dozen all-time lists, different all-time right. lists. But, uh, Bruno, I, I thank you so much for your time. We'll definitely have to bring this back because, I mean, we still had a lot of, of career and stories to hear from. Uh, again, like I said, anybody out there, uh, Facebook, social, uh, you don't have your own social media, but your YouTube, Facebook, there's all kinds of pictures, events, well, let me the say this right shows. Quick. Go ahead. Before we go, can I, if, if you don't mind, I'll say this. Absolutely. Go for it. One of my dearest friends, Daniel Jones, who he wrestles and he has, he has a wrestling school in uh, East Tennessee, uh, Dangerous Dan Matthews. It's called Net Pro Studios. Great guy. He runs a Facebook page for me it's called downtown bruno bookings and appearances anybody wants to bring me to make an appearance or do a, a signing or or be a special referee or something contact me through through that site downtown bruno bookings and appearances on facebook and then finally this shirt i'm wearing there's now the shirt that's for sale on pro wrestling t says i'm a downtown bruno guy there's also another one that says downtown bruno memphis tennessee Mama says it bees that way sometimes. That's on pro wrestling teams. Nice. So if anybody's interested in booking me or seeing where I've been, check out that Facebook site my friend Dan runs. And if you want to help me out with this, because I'm going to use that money towards my campaign in two years for for uh, running again for Alderman. There you so, go. Uh, so yeah, pro wrestling teams. Just look up downtown Bruno, and and uh, uh, I would appreciate it. Okay, Downtown Bruno Pro Wrestling Tees. Like he said, the Facebook page is Downtown Bruno Booking and Appearances. And if any of our listeners, uh, fans on YouTube are in Tennessee, uh, we're recording this October 10th, October 13th. You, Bruno, you're going to be one of the guests at the uh, Legends of Memphis Wrestling event. Uh, Memphis, University of Memphis Football uh, is, is sponsoring, so check that out. A lot of good names. I, lo- I saw that poster floating around about a week ago. Uh, you know, Jerry Lawler, obviously, uh, you know, you're you some of the, be- the better names from that era. So uh, check up, like you said, check them out. ProWrestlingTees.com, Downtown Bruno for the original Long Island Ice to be Benny Scala for Downtown Bruno. And uh, who maybe one day might run a little higher than Alderman, but who knows? I'm Dan Sebastian. <laughs> have, have a good night, everyone. And we will see you. Uh, we will see you next time. We're in the ring. It's like Mama says, it bees that way sometimes. <laughs>